0: Father, um, we do rejoice that you brought Joel and Ashley back safely. Um, Lord, we know that their week delay waiting for a flight was not out of your control. Um, Even the airlines, Lord, are not beyond your sovereignty. And so uh, whatever it was that you were accomplishing in that time for them, maybe just some downtime, some slowness in their life, having graduated from college, we thank you for that. We thank you for their safe return, and we pray your blessing on them. And Lord... um, that song, uh, Raise a Hallelujah, it, it always strikes me that we raise a hallelujah in the presence of our enemies. Lord, that we call everyone to worship you, even in the presence of our enemies. And so what a, what a glorious thought that is. And Father, I haven't prayed for Ukraine in a while, and I just was reminded as we were singing that of an image and a story uh, from Ukraine. It was a, a father holding his, the dead body of his teenage son in the middle of a square, praying, And the the article said that he'd been praying for three hours. And a police officer came over, and she knelt down next to him and joined him in prayer. And uh, Lord, it just is striking to think about prayer being offered in the middle of this after a a rocket attack, and people stop and pray for for their their loved ones. Uh, Lord, that's the nature of faith. And we know Ukraine is not the perfect nation, totally innocent, never done anything wrong. Lord, that doesn't exist but they are a nation that's been invaded. And so we pray that you would accomplish great and wonderful things in that nation in the midst of this chaos and this this turmoil and the death and destruction. Lord, would you do the things that you're doing there? And we pray for the church in Ukraine that they would raise a hallelujah in the presence of their enemies. Lord, that there would be a quality of faith that can't be denied or, or shaken off, that there is something different about these people. Father, we pray for the relief efforts in the nations surrounding Ukraine that are bringing in refugees and providing for their care. And we pray that you would meet their needs and exceed their needs. And Lord, that again, that what would be shown is not just humanitarian aid, but the love of Jesus Christ for those who are in trouble. Lord, we are all exiles. We're all um, migrants. We're all waiting for the new heavens and the new earth. And so help us to show compassion in those times. And Lord, now as we turn to your word, we pray that, Holy Spirit, you would open our minds and our hearts, help us to see and to understand. Let your word take root in us, we pray, in Christ's name, amen. So on Labor Day in 1970, that's a while ago, 1970, I know some of you folks probably didn't exist at that point, but it was a Labor Day in 1970, Uh, Glenda and Robert Lennon were fishing in the Gulf of Mexico a few miles off the coast of Florida near Tampa and uh, they'd been out for a little while and Glenda hopped in. She grabbed a a, a scuba mask and a a snorkel, hopped in to do some uh, spear fishing. She was just gonna float around and and jab at some fish. Um, After about 20 minutes of fishing, she looked up and realized she was way far away from the boat. She had drifted much further than she intended and so she turned to swim back to the boat and couldn't make headway. She was caught in a very strong current that was taking her out into the Gulf. So she called for her husband, Robert. And without thinking, Robert jumped in the water and swam out to her, left the boat behind. And so when they got there, they were both now caught in this very strong, there was eight knot tide heading out into the Gulf. And there's just no way for them to swim back. So what Robert said was he told his wife, Glenda, just tread water, just float. Don't, Don't fight the current, you're not strong enough. Robert was a championship swimmer in school. And so he said, "I will swim back to the boat, and then I'll come back and find you." It took him six hours swimming against this tide to get back to the boat, and he got in and he headed back to where he thought Glenda was, and he couldn't find her. She could see his lights floating around, but he couldn't find her. And so he went back to shore and he got some shrimp fishermen, and they came out and looked for her, and they couldn't find her. And so when he headed back to shore to to refuel to get something to eat. Um, the owner of the hotel that he stayed at, Duncan McRae, said, let's go out, I know these currents well. At 10 o'clock in the morning, they found her. 20 hours later at sea, she was blistered from the sun, she was exhausted from just treading water, but she was still alive. So 20 years later in 1990, this, uh, Orlando Sentinel did an interview with her and she told the story and in the end she said, I know one thing, ever since then, Bob and I have had a much healthier respect for the water. It, it's a terrifying thing to think that that current could, ta- could have taken her out, and we would have never seen her again. And, and that's what Peter is going to warn us about this morning, is this very strong current that can haul us away. And he's going to warn us that we have to pay attention to this. So in, in um, verse 5, he starts, for this very reason. Now, it, it, it's a strong statement. In Greek, often you'll see the word, uh, we'll see translated as for or therefore or since. And it's one short little word, has, just two letters. This is actually five words that he strung together. Peter is making it very clear for this very reason. I want you to not miss that I am connecting to this, to what I just said. It's that important for this very reason. So what is he connecting it to? What is, what is it that he's pointing to? Now, remember, 2 Peter is about our growing in grace. It, it's, it's growing in God's love for us that we can't earn. That's his point. And so last week, Peter told us how we can grow in grace. He said that Jesus' divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life. He's provided it to us. How? Well, it comes to us through our knowledge of him, through understanding who he is, and through his precious and very great promises. And through those things, we're able to escape the corruption that's in the world through evil desires and instead participate in the divine nature. That doesn't mean you'd become divine. It means you be, receive those blessings from the divine nature. So that's what he told us last week. So this week he picks up and he says, therefore, for, the, for this very reason, because this is true. So I think the most immediate thing he just talked about was the corruption that's in the world from evil desires for this very reason, because there's corruption in the world, through evil desire, for that reason, what? Well, that's what he's gonna tell us today. Make every effort. In other words, God's grace, to grow in God's grace, which you can't earn, he has giving you everything you need, it doesn't mean stop, do nothing. It, it, he, he tells us right here, make every effort. If you say, well, I am saved by grace, and therefore I don't have to do anything, it would be like if Glenda just stopped treading water. Not only would she be carried out to sea, she would drown. It would have been it. So Peter is warning us. He's like, there are evil desires in the world that lead to corruption. So if you want to grow in grace, you have to make every effort. You have to strive. You have to work extremely hard to grow in what you can't earn. It's almost a paradox, isn't it? how can I, if I have to struggle in it, then is it really grace? Well, what you'll see is, yes, it is grace, because God's given us everything we need. We have it. It's all been laid out for you, so make every effort. Now, what comes next um, is a list of Christian virtues, a, a list of things that we are to grow in, and it sounds like you have to do them sequentially. So, what Peter says is, Um, Make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge. So it sounds like you start with faith and then you go virtue and then knowledge. The the problem is the the list doesn't work because how can you have virtue without self-control? But virtue comes first and self-control comes later. So there's a lot of discussion about how this list works. Now, one thing that's really clear is it starts with faith and it ends with love. And so those two bookends are probably exactly right. They're perfect. But what's going on in the middle? Well, what's going on in the middle is hard to understand for two reasons. One is because uh, the way the ESV translates the word is supplement, um, add to, um, it, add to the, the, the thing that you've had. Um, it's a hard word to translate in this context, and I like the way John Piper uh, said it. He said, In your faith, furnish. But it still sounds like it's sequential. So the other part that makes this difficult to understand is what literary form is this list? And it's something called a soratis. A fancy, fancy word, soratis. Uh, soratis is used in rhetoric, the act of speech, but also in logic. And so what a soratis is, it comes from, I think it's the, the Greek word for pile or heap. And, and what it means is you just heap up these statements and they lead to something. So here's a really basic example. All bloodhounds are dogs. All dogs are mammals. No fish are mammals. Therefore, no fish is a bloodhound. So do you get what's going on? There's a, just a heap of statements. Is there any relationship between no fish are mammals? and, and all, th- There's no like flow. It's just this statement, this statement, this statement, therefore that. That's a serratis. And so that's the idea of what Peter is probably doing here. Is He's using that same kind of rhetoric to say not start with faith, and then get virtue, and then knowledge, and then self-control. And what he's saying is, these things are all just a pile. They heap up. These are all these virtues that kind of come together and should grow up in you. So as you're growing in grace, all of these things are coming together. It starts in a foundation of faith, because this is grace, because it's not something we earn. We start with faith, and the fruit, the flower at the top of the thing is love, so these other things in there are not saying do this and then you'll get this and then you'll get this. Instead it's saying these are all the virtues that you should come up that should come up and, and and grow and flourish in you. So it starts with faith, faith we know is foundational to Christianity. We are saved by faith alone. He has given us all things that we need for life and godliness through the knowledge of him through just believing his great and precious promises. That's faith. It has to start there. The next virtue is virtue. And, and it means this idea of goodness, of moral excellence. It, it just is what we should be doing. We're told how to behave. It's not like you, you walk an aisle, you say a prayer, and then you continue to, to rob your neighbor and cheat your taxes and fool around on your wife. We are supposed to have this moral standard. And so faith is first, and then this, this idea of virtue or moral excellence. The next one he mentions is knowledge. Um, It's a general term that applies to a wide range of subjects. It's not exactly the same word that he used when he said that all things have um, been provided through the knowledge of him who called us. It's a slightly different version of it. It's a little bit more generic, but it's probably not talking about um, struggling to understand auto mechanics or, uh, or, or astrophysics or something like that. The context would probably tell us this is to understand Uh, what God has revealed to us, what he's told us, how we understand who he said he is, what he's telling us to do. So that's that idea. The next one that comes up is self-control. And self-control was something that the Greek philosophers loved. It was really important to the the Greek philosophers. It, It was talking about man's mastery over his animal instincts And the Stoics love this. You have to be firm and you have to have self-control so you can war against the temptations that rage within you and you can use reason, logic, and understanding and figure things out. And that's probably not what Peter means by self-control. The word's used in the New Testament quite a bit. It's actually in Galatians 5.23, it's a fruit of the spirit. So it is self-control. In other words, we face temptations, these temptations come to us, and you should control yourself and not indulge them. Um, you can look at something and go, that's a good thing, I should do that. I don't want to. Well, control yourself and go do it. But it's not trying to us muscle our way up above our animal instincts and be you know, the stoic man that we are supposed to be. This is the fruit of the Spirit. This is the Holy Spirit at work within us. So self-control is one of the things that we're told to, uh, to grow in. The next one is steadfastness or endurance. Uh, It's to be able to stand in the time of trial and temptation, to not be blown away by every wind of doctrine that comes along. Not surprising at all, this word is used a number of times in the book of Revelation. Most of the times is in those letters to the seven churches at the beginning. To he who overcomes, to he who stands firm, who is steadfast, he will be given a white stone with his name on it. He, he will be a pillar in the, in the temple of my God. He will be given the secret manna, those kinds of things. So that's that idea of we're called to stand firm, to not budge, to not be pushed away. Then godliness, that's the same word from verse 3. Um, it's this idea that we get that godliness from Him, from knowing him, right? Uh, God has granted us, his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. It's that same word. So God has given us this ability to be godly, to to work in that direction. It sets us apart from the rest of humanity. We've been saved, and therefore God has made us born again. He's given us his spirit. He sealed on our heart his law, and so we have an inclination away from sin and toward godliness. That's, That's a promise that he's given us. We can hang on to that, and we have it through his great and precious promises. The next one is called Brotherly Affection, Philadelphia. The easy word to remember, right? The city of brotherly love. What he's talking about there is the the love we have for each other in the church. Uh, This is love pointed at a specific community. It's the community of the redeemed. And we know that it can work because if we're all doing this, we're all trying to share that brotherly love with each other. So you shouldn't have a black hole who's sucking all the brotherly love out of the fellowship. Ideally, we should all be sharing that. And so it's, it's easier to grow in that kind of thing. If we're all doing that, if we're all sharing in that brotherly love, that brotherly affection, then we're gonna weep with those who weep. We're gonna rejoice and celebrate with those who celebrate. We're gonna feel the pain of our brother and sister. We're gonna feel the joy of our brother and sister. That's what he's getting at with this brotherly affection is it's first and foremost within the fellowship of the church. And then finally, love ends the list, agape. Um, it's, uh, it's I, I don't, you've probably heard sermons about the difference between um, eros, phylos, and agape, and they're different types of love, and agape is a, is a godly love, and, and phylos is, uh, is a brotherly love, and eros is sexual love. or so. It doesn't, it's not that clear. (laughs) It doesn't really work that way because the Pharisees are said to agape their, uh, their position in the community. They they love being made much of. That's not a godly love. So when we talk about agape or philo, they can use, be used interchangeably. The context is what's going to tell us if they are or not. And this context sets them as two different things, the philo for the brotherhood is different than the agape that we're, we share in general. So what's he getting at when he says love? Um, it is the love we have and we can have and we're commanded to have for all of humanity, all of the world. And this is the hard part because we're told to love our enemies. We're told to bless those who persecute us. We're told to honor the emperor. We're told to submit to all, heaven, all human uh, institutions. And we're supposed to do that in love, and that's hard. <laughs> it's hard to do, especially if we're being opposed and persecuted. But that's why he says, "Make every effort to do these things." So we start with this foundation of faith, and then we have these other attributes that that, that God has given to us that He causes us to grow in. So. Paul lists these things and he ends with that idea of love and it's at the pinnacle. I think it's at the top for a very good reason. Paul does a similar thing. He has a list in Colossians 3.14 and after his list, at the very end of it, he says, above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. So that's why love is last in the list. It will pull all of those other attributes together in a a wonderful and a perfect way. uh, 1 Corinthians 3.13, Sorry, 1 Corinthians 13. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three. But the greatest of these is love. And so as we're growing, as we're maturing, as we are being conformed and we, we live more of this godly life that God has, has granted to us, the way it shows itself most fully, most perfectly, is in love. That's how we see it, is, is a general love for people around us, a concern, a care for others, and a love for each other. And that's hard. It, it's really difficult sometimes to, to love those around us that way. That's why he's told us we have to, above all things, work on this. This is what we're told to do. This is how you grow in grace, is by struggling to do these things. So verse 8, he goes on, he says, if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of, of our Lord and Savior, or of our Lord Jesus Christ. If these qualities, if these things are yours and increasing, they keep you from being ineffective and unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord. Now, he has just told us, what does the knowledge of our Lord do? The knowledge of our Lord has given us all things that we need for life and godliness. So therefore, he's basically repeating what he said in verse three, if these qualities are yours, are increasing. So what he's telling us is, take a look at yourself for a moment. Take a look and and, and assess yourself. How are you doing with these things? If you look at your life and you go, well, I was pretty bad about being jealous of other people and I got saved, but I haven't really changed much since. And by the way, I've been a Christian, oh, 30 years now. Then Peter's saying, that's a warning, my friends. That that, that something is going on. If you're not growing in these things, then something is happening and you're being ineffective and unfruitful in the things that you're supposed to do. So if these qualities are yours, if you can look and say, okay, yeah, I've got some of those and they're increasing. I'm better at some than the others. Then Peter's warning us. He's saying, take a look at yourself. Strive in these things. Pray about these things. Use the means that God has given us to grow in those things. You don't want to be ineffective or unfruitful in in those kinds of things. It's it's possible. He says ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus. It's possible to have a knowledge of Jesus and to not be fruitful. It's possible for somebody to to orthodoxly confess that Jesus Christ is the only begotten Son of God, eternally um, uh, the Son of the Father, Uh, there was never a time when the sun didn't exist, and be totally unfruitful. That's kind of chilling, isn't it? It's kind of scary to think you can have all the doctrine right and still be lost. Because doctrine is necessary. It is, you can't not have doctrine, but it's not sufficient. There's got to be more. So the really scary warning, I think this is, Peter is saying basically what it says in Hebrews chapter 6. It's a long read, but stick with me on this. This is Hebrews 6, 4 through 8. For it is impossible in the case of those who have been enlightened, who've tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. For land that has drunken rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful for those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it's worthless and near to being cursed and its ed is to be burned. So that's the same warning that's going on here is pay attention to this. Don't play church. Don't play Christian. Take a look at yourself. How am I doing? Am I seeing growth in my life? Am I seeing things happen in my life? I love the way Doug Mu put this. He's he's one of the commentators. He said, as we've seen, many are the gifts of the Spirit that are present to some degree in all Christians, or many of these are, are gifts that are seen. No, the issue is not one of having them or not having them. The issue is one of growing in degree to which the Christian exhibits them. We must not be content, Peter suggests, with a B minus in goodness or knowledge or self-control or godliness or brother kind, brotherly kindness or love, we should not be content until we have an A plus in each one. That's what he's telling us to do. That's how he's saying you have to grow in grace is don't be content with where you're at. Have a holy discontent that's saying, I want to be more. I want to be more like Christ. Work diligently for these things. For this reason, because there's evil desires in the world, apply yourself to this even more. Moo um, goes on and adds, just for, to, for our sake, for our sanity, he adds, this is a goal I don't think any of us will achieve in this life. I, I don't think we're going to get the A+. We get the A+, when Jesus returns and goes, hey, I got the A+, for you. But in the meantime, we're struggling, and we're wrestling, and we're going, we're not happy, we're not satisfied with where we're at right now. So here's another picture that I want to use for this. The owner of the vineyard's come by and seen you in the middle of the day not doing anything, and he says, come and I'll pay you a denarius. Come and work in the garden. And so you come into his vineyard, and what do you find in the vineyard? There's the vines. They're already growing. They just need some attention. There's all the tools you'll need, the hoe, the rake, the the trimmers, all of it's laid out. There's a big pile of uh, mulch ready for you there's a stream of really clean fresh water running through this vineyard. And, and what the owner of the vineyard has said is, come in and take care of this. And so your call is not to walk in the vineyard and sit down and go, well, I got nothing to do. The, the vines are gonna need to be trimmed. They continually grow, they need to be cut right. There's weeds constantly coming up. You need to get some of that fresh water to the plants. You need to tend the things that are growing in the garden. So that's what it means by work diligently at these things, but you're growing in grace. Is that your vineyard? You've been called in. You've been invited in and provided with everything you need to do that. So this is what we're commanded to do to grow in grace. So how do you do it? How do you grow in grace? Well, God has given you everything you need, so do it. So pick it up and do it. That means prayer. Spending time in prayer is one of the ways that he gives you to grow in grace. You can call out to him say, Lord, I need more of you. I'm feeling apathetic. It's hard for me to get off of Instagram for 10 minutes. I need more of you. You can pray. He's given you his word. I, I love Rich's introduction that this is God's inspired word for us. Spend some time in it. You you need to have that knowledge of God poured again into your mind and into your heart over and over and over again. You have been given a group of people who've been commanded to love you with brotherly love. Make much of that. Avail yourself of that quite a bit. That's how you don't wind up drifting away from the shore, but somebody's pulling you back in and helping you uh, stay where you're supposed to be. So this is, this is what we're told to do, and it's a little scary, and it, it's a little jarring, and it's supposed to be, I think. It's supposed to get our attention. It's supposed to call us to that godly life. So then verse 9, he says, For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Whoever lacks these things is got two conditions. Nearsightedness, in other words, can't see um, things far away very well. Oh, and by the way, and they're blind. They can't see anything. So what's going on here? Well, I think what Peter is getting at when he puts those two words up is he's saying you've, you've lost your ability to see what's far away. You're, you're floating in this current and you're looking. You can't see the shore. You can't see the boats, lights that are searching for you. You, you can't see them because you're not engaged in this. You don't think that you're going to be saved. You've forgotten what's what's on the other side. You've forgotten what your goal is. You're nearsighted. You can only see the immediate problem. What do I need now? And then you're blind. You, you can't see the danger that you're in now. You're blind to what's threatening you. The current, the deep waters, the fact that you're going to be exhausted at some point. You're, you've forgotten that. You've you blind and you're nearsighted, having forgotten that he was he um, that you were cleansed from your former sins. That's the scary part. Is is we could get to this point. We could have this experience. We could taste. Of these wonderful things and then forget them and forget that we've been cleansed so the picture that that he's painting here is is don't tread water don't just float nobody has ever floated into holiness nobody's ever drifted into a more godly life it, the the world is filled with evil desires that are constantly being pumped at you constantly being thrown your way and what do his desires do they allure you, they tempt you, they draw you in different directions. That's that current. So if I can flip the metaphor of the current a little bit, is you can't swim back to the shore. You can't make it on your own. Your husband has told you, tread water, stay afloat. And he's gone off. He's done what you can't do. He's gone against the current. He's gone to get the boat. And for right now, he's not here and it's scary. And it's going to seem like it's too long. It's going to be 20 hours. It's going to be overnight. But in the morning, you're going to hear that boat coming back for you. Your husband went, got the boat, and he's now coming back to rescue you. You have been cleansed of your former sins. Jesus did what you could not do. He fought the current. He's the guy that can swim for six hours. I can't imagine swimming for five minutes. How did this guy swim for six hours? I just picture this big buff guy, you know, just like, huge upper body because that would exhaust me in no time that's our that's our jesus that's our husband who went off to get the boat so he could save his wife don't forget that stay afloat keep working in the current that you're in not satisfied that you're going away from shore but don't exhaust yourself trying to get to the shore yourself you won't make it you need somebody to come and rescue you need a husband who's a championship swimmer who by the way now has a boat That's what we need, and that's what Peter is calling us to. That's what it means to grow in grace, is to say, I'm saved by grace. I will be rescued by grace. I can't make it to the shore without God, but I'm going to do what he's told me to do in the meantime. And when we get pulled into the boat, we'll be blistered and sore and tired. But won't that be great? Won't that be wonderful to, to, to finally get to the other side and to say, we've been rescued, we've been redeemed, and it's all of grace. It, God did that. We were talking politics a little bit in the back, and we were saying, you know, politics, there's, there's no ideal politics. And I was like, yeah, there is one. There's one ideal politic. And that's when we have a benevolent dictator who comes and takes over. This benevolent dictator who would never be selfish, who, who would care for other people so much that he would get to the extent where he would die for them. Uh, this benevolent dictator who can read hearts and know what the thoughts of men are. That's what we need is one who loves us that much. That's when politics is perfect. That's our blessed hope is Jesus' return. So now we're in the water. We're treading. We're trying not to sink. We're staying afloat. And Peter is right next to us going, do this. Struggle with this. Grow in these things. You'll, you'll, you'll make it. You're going to get there. And so that's, that's the next part of what we need to do when we grow in grace is to struggle toward these things that he's given us. We'll talk more about it as we go through Peter. and We'll get some more hints about how we can struggle to grow in grace. But in the meantime, keep treading water. Don't stop swimming. Let's pray. Lord, it's, it's refreshing. It's encouraging. It's important to know that this list of virtues that Peter commends to us, so many of them are listed in your word in other places as fruits of the Spirit that they're not things that we stir up and we induce in ourselves. And if we just try hard enough, we can struggle to to be in self-control, Lord. It is the spirit who is at work in us. It's the power of God at work in us us, to will and to work according to his purpose. And so, Lord, thank you that you've given us your spirit to do these things. But Lord, that doesn't eliminate our need to struggle with it. And so we pray that we'd find that balance where we're not thinking we're doing it on our own, or thinking that we don't have to do it. But Lord, that we're trusting in the work that you're accomplishing, that you're doing in us daily. And Lord, I pray for us all that we would make use of the things that you've given us to help us grow in grace through worship, fellowship, prayer, Bible study, through service to um, others, through through all of the things that you call us to do to in the world. Um, may they train our hearts to trust in you more. And Lord, we ask this all in Christ's name. Amen.